Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesse. I want everyone open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're still in chapter 1. Last week, we began with the first two verses, and we looked at Christ's heart for his flock. And so, out of his heart and love for his bride, he commands Paul. Out of Paul's commitment to that charge, he commissions Timothy. And out of Timothy's commitment, he instructs and shepherds the church in Ephesus. And um, this great call of stewarding the flock of God, Christ's sheep, his bride, begins with stewarding the doctrine of God. And so that's why we start here in chapter 1, where Paul does with the doctrine of the church. And so chapter 1 is concerned with the doctrine and addresses three types of teachers. And this is... uh, We're going to look at this over the next two weeks. Paul addresses three categories with three personal appeals. This week, we're going to look at the first appeal. First appeal begins in verse three. I urge you. So this urging is against false teachers. It's against those who would put themselves up as authorities against the truth of the gospel. This second group of or the second teacher Beginning in verse 12, by the second appeal, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus. So Paul, as a teacher, gets his charge from Christ, the teacher. So he sets the false teachers apart from the one true teacher in whom he has, give, has been given his ministry. And then finally, he's going to close with, in verse uh, 18, this, I, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, as a teacher. So against the false teachers and uh, according to the, the, the true teacher, Christ the Lord, and to the next generation of teachers in Timothy. So that's what we're going to do the next couple weeks. Uh, and so kind of give you some backstory on where we are. So this is the church in Ephesus. Uh, we read earlier from Acts 20 where Paul spent three years there and he didn't cease and laboring and teaching them the truth. But he gave them a warning probably a couple years before. I want you to see that again up on the screen. Uh, Acts chapter 20, look at verses 28 to 32. Same body, same governing elders. Paul knew and he instructed and he warned what was to come. Picking up in verse 28. Pay careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. Here's that shepherding metaphor that we fleshed out last week. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Here's why we see elders as both pastors and uh, overseers. There's not two different offices. Every elder, this is addressed to the elder. Every elder must be a shepherd. And he must be an administrator. He must have oversight over the body. And care for the church of God. Which he obtained with his own blood. Who's God? Jesus Christ the Lord obtained the church with his own blood. And here's where Paul speaks prophetically into the future. I know, he's certain here, that after my departure, fierce wolves, fierce wolves will come in among, not sparing the flock. Here's the reality of this. It was true for Ephesus. It's true of every church in every era. It is a certainty that as the church grows, the enemy will infiltrate and send in wolves in sheep's clothing. Will desire to pull the weak away. The goats will try to gain influence within the church. And so this is why Paul tells them to gain careful attention. 
We and no other church on the planet is immune from this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. The greatest threats to the church are not from without, they're from within. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, second time, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul is so passionate for the purity of the body of Christ that he, he ministers with tears because he knows what's coming and he knows how valuable she is. And now, this apostolic commissioning I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. What is the answer? What is it that we hold to in the midst of false teaching, in the midst of wolves who rise up among us? The word of God's grace. That's what builds up. That's what strengthens. That's what protects. That's what guards. That is what he exhorted them with. And that is exactly what he's calling them to a few years later when he writes to Timothy. And so Paul goes on his way to Macedonia. They have a conversation. Timothy stay at Ephesus. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let me read our text. Uh, I will pray and then we'll dive in. First Timothy chapter one, beginning in verse three. As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving away from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with whom I have been with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning opening your inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. There are no mistakes here. This is a word that was written to a church in history but reverberates throughout the ages. There is so much for us to learn and glean from. So many principles that we should apply. Lord, I pray that this text this morning would encourage us in the gospel, would guard us against false teachers, but also guard ourselves from false teachings or division that may exist within our own doctrine or our own hearts. Lord, may we be good stewards of the doctrine of God. 
May we good, be good stewards of the people of God and the resources of God. None of this comes from ourselves. Our faith nor our finances are begin with us. They're all from you. You entrust them to us. Lord, I pray for the elders of this church. That we would lead well and lead humbly. We'd be faithful examples of the body. I pray for the deacons. Serve alongside us. I pray for our members. Who labor with one another and encourage one another. Lord, may we be found faithful. May we be fervent for the truth. Yet constant in love. And may you use us in the harvest and the furthering of your kingdom and the glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. First Timothy chapter one, verse three, as I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. All right. So situational note. We don't know the when. Scholars kind of speculate that this is probably after he got released from prison in Rome, but we're not sure. We know for sure it's after he spent three years there. He knows the elders. He knows the congregation well. Um, But we do know the why. That's the more important thing. I urge you when you I was going to Macedonia, reign in Ephesus, so that here's your purpose. That you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This word for charge, it's a military word. It's someone who is given authority on higher authority. It is relaying a command from a superior. It's not a command that you give in and of yourself. Paul instructs Timothy to relay this command that he received. Same word is used in 1 Corinthians 7.10. This will give you a much better idea where Paul kind of comments on the word himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where Paul says, To the married, I give this charge, same word, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. That's what Paul's doing here. I give this charge to you, Timothy, not I, but the Lord. Everything I'm about to tell you is coming first and foremost from Jesus Christ through me, his servant, to you, his servant. And when we open the scriptures, we take it as Christ's servants. And so as we said last week, if Timothy is in fact timid, if he is in fact unsure of himself or unhealthy, this is a great reassurance to Timothy. You don't have to speak on your own authority. You are given a charge and it is from Christ Jesus, the Lord. You speak on his authority. And so you can do that confidently. The same idea comes up in verse five and we'll expound on that later. So this direction, this kind of first, this first command to Timothy sets the tone for the rest of the book and the rest of the chapter. First and foremost, the doctrine of the church, who Christ is and what he's done. That is the foundation of everything else that comes out of it. That's what we must address first. And Timothy, as a true son in the faith, is called and entrusted to carry this out. And so this, this, this charge that Paul gives, the certain persons, what's wrong with those certain persons? Paul most likely creates a new Greek word for this situation. It doesn't appear anywhere else. 
Those teaching other doctrines. Heterodidascaleo. The teachers of other things. It is this heartfelt concern that those who are teaching different doctrine are a cancer. There is one Christ. You cannot teach another. This is the same concern in almost every letter of Christ. Look at Galatians 1. Similar concern. Because this happens in the churches. Listen, if Paul can go and set the doctrine of the church and you can get off course in a couple of years, let's not get too comfortable either. Galatians chapter 1. You might be familiar with this, but it's the same idea. A different doctrine, a different Christ, a different gospel. Pick him in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be anathema, cursed, condemned to hell for eternity. That is how serious Paul takes different gospels and different doctrines. He says the same thing to the church in Corinth. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's the bridal language, the bride of Christ and her purity. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Like I know I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going back to square one with you guys. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband... To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. This is what's at stake. Our husband Jesus Christ and his bride. The church. But I am afraid. That as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and promotes another Jesus from the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. This is the warning to the church throughout the ages. There is one Jesus Christ. There is one true doctrine. There is one spirit. But how many have tried to to pass off counterfeits as the real thing. And so if there's a different gospel, if there's a heterodox, there must be an orthodox. And we saw that in Acts 20. The doctrine had already been established. He told them what it was. Look at Acts 20, 20 and 21 again. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith toward our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. Day after day, house after house, Paul did not stop preaching and laying the foundation of the gospel. That's the true doctrine. Now there's a different doctrine that is arising. And so as we kind of flesh this out, I'm going to spend a, most of our time, or a lot of time in verse three, because this is kind of the, the foundation. What's at stake here? What's the issue? Here's what we have to see. We're going to look at the rest of 1 Timothy. Unified doctrine. Unity of mind and spirit and action is what creates order in the church. 
This is why the churches of pluralism, unitarianism, or uh, syncretism can never prosper. Pluralism, where multiple ideas and multiple gods stand, multiple religions stand side by side. Unitarianism, all religions are the same. All dogs go to heaven. All paths lead to God. Syncretism. I'm going to take a bit of this one that I like and a bit of this one that I like. Those are bastards. They are Frankensteins of doctrine and they are blasphemous to the Lord Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when it arises in the church, Paul takes action and he sends his most trusted and faithful son, Timothy, to carry out the order. And I am so thankful for this church. Because I know if someone walks in the door denying the deity of Christ, denying the substitutionary work on the cross, denying the resurrection, trying to redefine the one and true living God, trying to redefine biblical manhood and womanhood, uh, I would not have to say a word and they would not make it very far. A couple weeks ago, you may have noticed if you sat in the back, there were a couple gentlemen who walked in here. They came in late. Came with a briefcase, and um, Sam ushered them to their seat as he should. Uh, but I knew that Sam didn't. They came with a briefcase and they came on a mission. And some of you saw me quickly go over and talk to them. I said, "Listen, guys, if you're here for worship, you can stay. But if you're here for what I, this event that I know that you're promoting, you need to leave. Or you, you, you we're not interested. Uh, we're not going to be a part of it." Oh, we're here to talk to Pastor Tim. I'm Pastor Tim. And, um, yeah, and uh, we're not interested. You can stay for worship. Um, but, if, but, if, but if not, there, there's nothing here for you. Okay, thank you. And they left. They're a cult. They're a cult that talks about Jesus. That talks about repenting and believing in him. But they promise a very different gospel. They promise all sorts of fanciful things about healing. They have a uh, prophet who, who has this divine mission from, from, from God. And everything sounds great in the surface until you get in. And there's all these additional things you have to do and all these additional things you have to do. Pastors are also sheepdogs. And so we need to be that too. And I'm thankful for a church that can do that. But I think it's important for us. We must distinguish between those who are trying to teach and promote false doctrines and those who are asking questions. This always should be a church where people can come and say, okay, what is this Jesus thing you guys are talking about? If someone wants to learn and ask questions, we will bear with them as long as they need. But if someone comes in as an authority, I love there's an example that Paul Washer uses getting into this, this text. And I really commend um, Paul has what is like eight or nine uh, hour lectures on the verse uh, um, on the uh, book of First Timothy. Of course he does. Uh, the first one he doesn't even open First Timothy, um, <laughs> but he uses the analogy of this is the bride of Christ, and I love this. I'm gonna steal it from him and I'll give him full credit. Um, it's like you walking into my house and telling my wife what to do. How far do you think that's gonna go? You walk into Christ's house. And you tell his bride that she needs to change her clothes, that she needs to act differently, 
that she needs to do all these other things to please you. How dare you? He very nicely said, I would ask you to leave. It would not be that nice in my house. It should not be that nice in this house. There's the other side. Here's the other extreme, and we're going to be honest because we're, we're family. We're going to talk about this. Most of you will have no idea what I'm going to say in the next two minutes, and that's okay. But I want you to get the principle out of it. But many of you, if you're in the reformed world, you will know what I'm talking about. We live in the age of reformed cancel culture. So here's the other side of this. One side is we want to protect the true doctrine. But some people are so zealous for their, for their, their little issue that every secondary thing becomes a primary thing. We must distinguish between harmful false gospels and minor differences within orthodoxy. This is a real problem. I would describe these guys, these um, self-righteous guys in their particulars, they're the ones who will shoot everybody in the same uniform who doesn't have as many medals on their chest as they do. If you're not familiar with this, you just go online and look at a lot of the very popular reform teachers. Sadly. Or done. Do we care about, about distinctives and secondary things? Of course. But we stand with Richard Baxter. Baxter. In essentials, unity. The gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. His death and resurrection for forgiveness of sins. Life everlasting in him. The triune God who works out his plan of redemption, Father, Son, and Spirit. His infallible word. The bride of Christ and her health. The essentials we stand firmly on. And non-essentials we can have diversity. We can differ in these things within what we would call orthodoxy. Right doctrine, not false doctrine. But in all things, charity. And that will come up more. The, the internet is a breeding ground for this. This is a danger of making secondary things primary. What happens with a lot of young, excited theologians, they've been given this theology hammer and everyone becomes a nail. <laughs> and as you see, as you'll see when we go through this, this text, this is the opposite of what Paul is telling Timothy to do. So I want you to keep that in mind. So he says, as I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So what are the myths and endless genealogies exactly? We don't know. They knew. What we do know is that a lot of Jews, especially there were extra biblical works that, that, that promoted um, myths and, um, and added things to the lives of Enoch and Elijah. And, and uh, there's all these, these additional things that they began to find their identity. And they were, they, they were nationalistic, hoping that revolutionaries would, would rise up again. They also put their faith and their hope in genealogies. This was more important in Jewish culture than it is in, was in Greco-Roman culture. They would trace themselves back to Abraham. They would even stand before Christ and say, Abraham is our father. We follow Moses. Christ stands before them and says, before Abraham was, I am. And so Paul says, don't go after these things. It doesn't matter exactly what they went after. Here's what matters. If it promotes another hope, other than repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, it is a false gospel. 
That's Paul's concern. Because these people who are devoting themselves, it's not just, hey, we're going to talk about this and entertain it. They devote themselves to it. This becomes their, their primary focus. Myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship. So one of the things we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at, as we did a moment ago, and as we go through, the issues that it caused in the church in Ephesus and the issues that it causes today. So this idea of, of myths and genealogies is no different than people who create a Christ of their own image. I'm going to pull the Jesus from here or here. I'm going to, I'm going to have the Jefferson Bible approach and just take the, cut, cut out the parts that I don't like. Um, or the people looking for lost gospels. Have you seen that they, you know, unearthed this new gospel and everything else before it is wrong? The, the revelations of Joseph Smith or whoever else. Or genealogies. We've got our own version of, of genealogies. How many people have I, tr- have I talked to who trust in the faith of their parents? Who trust in the history of their church? Or who trust in their baptism and have no knowledge of saving faith in Christ? Anything that may even sound good or be good that that stands in the place of Christ for salvation, for the sufficiency of his work is a false gospel. And these men who are promoting these things, these speculations rather than stewards, uh, stewardship can never grant assurance. If you're speculating, if you're if you love controversies, you're always going to be uncertain. Because there's always a new thing. There's always a new debate. There's always a new thing added to it. Without faith in Christ, there's always uncertainty. So when he says here, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God, that is by faith. There is one God. There is one true faith. There is only one steady anchor for our souls. Everything else is waves crashing against the boat that want to toss us to and fro. Paul says, don't fall for it. You've been anchored to Christ. Stay anchored to him. And so when he talks of stewardship, this is a compound Greek word. Putting together two concepts of house and law. Oikos namas, putting them together. A steward is the law of the house. He's the one who orders the house. God's house is a house of rules, a house of order. A steward is one who does not own the house. But he fears the one who entrusts it to him. So he keeps it in good order and he upholds the law of the house. God's house is not a house of conjecture and speculation, but ordered faith. Unshakable hope, hope, solid ground, not sinking sand. We talked about this on Wednesday night in our Acts Bible study. Why is it important that they keep bringing up that Jesus Christ was in the flesh? He's Jesus of Nazareth. That he died. We read earlier in intercessory prayer that when he rose again, there were more than 500 brothers who he appeared to. You can ask him, why do we bring these things up? Because our faith is not one of speculation. We've been stewarded a historical fact. Our Savior walked in time. Our Savior walked among people. Our Savior rose from the grave and and revealed himself to the women and the twelve and many more after them. We stand in a historically solid faith. Why would we go into speculation? Why would we wander off into myths? God's plan of salvation is concrete, unchangeable, and historical. And so Paul goes on. That's them. 
charge them not to promote these things because it's so contrary to what you know to be true. Here's the other charge. The aim of our charge, same Greek word here. Same idea of taking the orders from a superior. Here's what we've been charged with. This this complicated system of, of, of doctrine, 19 volumes of... No. The aim of our charge is love. Wow. The aim of our charge is love. Some of you theologians in the room don't believe me. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's spend a moment here. The stewards of God's house are charged to teach love because of the love of God and stir love for one another. Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment sums up the rest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the doctrine of God. The God who so loved the world that he sent his only son. And in response to saving sinners, we respond in love for him. And likewise, in love for one another. The false teachers are not concerned with love. They're not concerned with building up the body as Paul charged the the elders in Ephesus. But they're concerned with their own intellectual pursuits. They're concerned with seeming smart. They're concerned with placing themselves up in authority above others. J.I. Packer's a quote machine. And one of my favorite quotes, which you've probably heard me say before, is that any theology that does not lead to doxology is not a good theology at all. There may be, a lot, may be too many ologies in there for you. Let me, let, let, me, let me simplify it. Any teaching that you believe that does not, uh, about God, that does not cause you to praise him and respond to him in love, is not a good teaching. Because if what you believe does not cause you to respond in love to God and respond in love to his own, you don't understand the God you talk about. This is the false teachers. Don't believe me. Believe Jesus. And so here's the attention here. We'll get to Jesus in a moment in John 13. You can flip there while I'm saying this. Here's the tension. Some of us, it's only about love, and we just want to throw doctrine out the window. That is not what Paul's saying. Some of us, we care so much about doctrine that we throw love out the window. We are those who speak the truth in love, and we don't sacrifice one on the altar of the other. But what is it that shows that we are his disciples? What is it that Jesus will judge us by? John 13, 34, and 35. Now, I'm not going to read the whole section But I want you to know what comes before. What comes immediately before these verses is Jesus' concern for the glory of God and his glory in the Father. So the glory of God, the glory of the Father and the Son, leads him to say this. A new command I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus is saying the love of the Father toward me is poured out to you. You also are to love one another. By this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Jesus said there are two markers of his disciples. How will they know? You'll obey my commands and you'll love one another. That is the body of Christ. The love of God the Father poured out in God the Son. Sealed in God the Spirit. Returned in love for our Redeemer. And so Paul doesn't stop there. The aim of our charge is love that issues from where does this love come from? How does this love stirred up? And so maybe I need to define love for some of you. Love is not what the media tells you. Love is not what Hallmark tells you. Love is not I'm feeling warm and fuzzy inside. Therefore, I feel love. Love is an actual response. Love is an action. Love is a choice. Love requires of you for someone else. True love doesn't care whether the other person is worthy of love or not. This love, it must come from, it does come from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's look at each one of these. The righteousness of Christ regenerates our hearts or purifies our hearts. We have hearts of stone. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. We can't even trust them. We must be pure in heart. How does that happen? Because it doesn't come from me. I will take your heart of stone and turn it to a heart of flesh. That can only happen from the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We see him because he first saw and poured his love on us. This love in our hearts, this purification, this regeneration leads to a clear conscience. This awareness, this, this mind of God. I will put my spirit within them. I will cause them to walk in my statutes. He transforms our hearts and he transforms our minds. This new mind, this new awareness is a clear conscience. I stand convicted and convinced because God has opened my eyes. God has given me eyes to see, a mind to understand, and a heart to feel and love him. And that produces a sincere faith. The regeneration of the heart, the awareness of the mind, the faith of the will, the love of of Christ to us and in us will produce love for him and for one another. This is what Paul's getting at. God transformed you so that you may love him and love one another. He is that concerned for his church that even that he makes possible for us by changing our heart and opening our eyes. Paul also tells us faith, hope, and love in 1 Corinthians 13 and the greatest of these is love. So here's a doctrinal test. Does your doctrine, does what you believe about God, does what you believe about Scripture, lead you to love the Lord and His church? Here's the test. I hope that it does. And I know you. I know for most of you it does. But I know some of us struggle. 
We get so caught up in our theologies and our ideas, we become critical, we become self-righteous. Or does your doctrine lead to more controversy and to another controversy and to another controversy? You're so exhausted because you have to solve every issue with everyone everywhere and police everyone's doctrine. You can't. You won't. John Calvin says of this idea that if your doctrine fuels controversies and it does not build up the church, it should be discarded outright. You should have nothing to do with it. I know I'm preaching to the choir here in a lot of ways, but this is important for us as we think about the world around us and what may try to influence us in the future, what, who we may listen to online, who you listen to and who you love. Do they stir you to love the Lord and to love his church? Or are they making you a theological curmudgeon, which is the opposite of what Paul's talking about? Because those people, verse 6, those certain persons, by swerving from these, love, heart, conscience, faith, by swerving from this is, this is missing the mark. This is the aim, the target's here, they're over here. We talk about this in Proverbs, but if you're one degree off, doesn't seem like much at first, but as that bullet or arrow travels, you become way off the further and further it gets down the road. They are missing the mark. They are wandering off and going astray into vanity. Vain discussions. Things of the air, mists that just disappear after they're, they're, they're spoken. Certain persons, by swerving from these, the essentials, have wandered off into vain discussions and desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding. There's a popular t-shirt bumper sticker idea. Not all that wander are lost. That may be true if you like being in the woods, but theologically... If you wander, you will be lost. So when do discussions become vain discussions? When do you wander off? Let's take another little test here. Let's, let's consider. How many times have you, or I'm asking for a friend here, how many times have your speculations taken so much of your time that they become convictions? How many times have that that time investment become a conviction that it becomes all you think about that you become critical and self-righteous of others and then that grows that since everyone is not on your level then you become unloving and impatient toward other believers who don't have the same precise some of you are looking at me like deer in the headlights i have no idea what you're saying some of you are saying amen again and again and again in your head. So through this, through this sermon, I'm going to talk to everybody a little bit. This is just to my um, theologically minded people. And I am speaking from experience. I have been there. We call it a cage stage for a reason. We let you out when, you're, when you can handle it on your own. But how many times does this speculation become a conviction? This conviction leads you to be critical to other Christians, and then it creates division. This is contrary to the love that Paul is talking about, that Jesus commanded us to in his vein. And we're not talking about within orthodoxy here. We're not, we never compromise on the essentials, never. 
But if it's not, what are we proving? This foundation cannot stand. Paul gives a similar idea in 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. There's one foundation. The church is one foundation. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul isn't building anything new. He's building what has been entrusted to him. And every subsequent generation builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. This analogy is speaking things that men value, that men add to it. Well, Jesus is good, but I can make this a little bit better. I can make it more appealing to this group or more appealing to this group or more suitable for me. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. The only thing that will survive is that which is built on Christ and for Christ. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but it's only through fire. Well, that doesn't really make sense with the rest of that. What's Paul saying? There? He's saying even us, even we who are redeemed, the church in Christ, there are believers who have started in Christ and try to continue in the flesh, try to continue in gold, silver, wood, hay, or straw. Even us, we will find out one day like, man, I did that in my own strength and in my own ideas, and that will be burnt up. We're saved because of Christ, but anything we add to it will be burnt up. But the false teachers, the false gospels, it'll all burn. It's all going to be destroyed. It is all dross as it's put into the fire. So those teachers, be warned with them because they are taking the true foundation and they are distorting it. These these ones, they're desiring to be teachers of the law. Verse 7, i got to move a little faster. Um, evidence that these are Jewish teachers. So Greeks don't care if they're teachers of the law. Law here, kind of um, shorthand for the entirety of the Old Testament summed up in the Ten Commandments. They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make such confidence. It comes out of ignorance. How many people proclaim doctrines they don't even think through? They can never prove and they never build up the church. Teachers of vain doctrines find plenty of these. People going off on this tangent or this tangent. And, and you can always tell how much they talk about Christ and where they put Christ in their, in their, their teaching. Because many of them start with Christ. But then they wander off. And you can trace it through pretty quickly. But be careful if you desire to be a teacher. Here's what James tells us in James 3.1. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. This is why Paul is putting the hammer down here, and here it's justified. Because they want to be teachers. They claim to be teachers. And, okay, you want to you, you teach? I'm going to hold you to a higher standard. 
We guard the doctrine of the church highly. Anyone who has ever taught here knows that. Because you'll probably have a conversation with me before and after. Because you are judged with a greater strictness. And if you're not up to that, that's fine. But just know that that's what we expect. Because, But these men are trying to put themselves up as authorities. And so Paul, kind of anticipating the arguments here, he changes direction a little bit, but he's building on what came before. Verse 8, now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. It's not the law that's the problem. It's the, un, it's the improper teaching of it. The law is useful. It shows us a holy God. It shows us our sin. It, it points us to Christ. The law is good. Use it lawfully. John Calvin building on Martin Luther gave us the three uses of the law, which I think are really helpful. All three are present in this text. Number one, it renders us inexcusable before God. The picture is of a mirror. The law is shown so that what, what happens when you, when you haven't showered in a while and you stand before a mirror? Well, you can see all the dirt on your face. You see you need to wash it up. But can that mirror clean you? Of course not. The mirror shows you your sin. It, it, it shows you how wretched you are and drives you to repentance. That's, that's one use. It's for the lawless, the sinner that Paul talks to here. The second use is it's a restrainer of evil. Renders inexcusable, restrains evil. It's a social and public deterrent. The law of God is the standard um, for most Western laws. They're guide rails for humanity. It keeps humanity from going into, into chaos because we are, we, we are sinners. We, we need to be hemmed in. We need guide rails. The third use it's a, it is a rule for believers. It is a guide. Because if you have been redeemed, the love of Christ is in you. It is joyful obedience. It is our guide that we walk according to the law. This is what... Calvin calls the principle or proper use of this in the church. That's the good use of the law. But Paul's directing us. Let's go on to verse nine. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but the lawless and the disobedient. Legal theory 101. Laws are needed because people are wicked. If everyone was perfect, we wouldn't need laws. Here's the idea. Think about it. Every law that is in place is there because someone is tempted to break it. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, I love many things about Florida. There's a lot of weird things about Florida. So in Florida, it is illegal for you to feed an alligator. It's a good law. It's also illegal for you to fight a bear. Probably a better law. Some of them... It is, if you're going to park your elephant at a parking meter, you must still pay the fee. That is a law on the books. Someone somewhere parked their elephant and, did, and didn't think they have to pay for it because they didn't have a windshield. It is also a law, God bless Florida, that men cannot wear strapless dresses in public. But someone somewhere found an occasion for this law to be put on the books. Why do I say all that? God's law is in place because we are all lawbreakers. 
This is why Christ Jesus had to come under the law, under the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral, and uphold them all. Because we couldn't. And he kept them perfectly. And so when Paul says here that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, because through him, through Christ, now the just live by faith and not the law. Because we're united to Christ, his church. But without Christ, without faith, the law stands. And you're under its, its condemnation and you are lawless. But Christians, the just, in Christ, walk, walk with the law standard as our guide. So then he goes on. We're not going to get into each one of these, but I want you to see something here. He goes on. To, he gets into three inclusive pairs of categorical sins and six specific wicked contemporary practices. If you studied ahead of time, you realize that this coincides with the law he's talking about. This is a, a contemporary representation of the Ten Commandments. So he's got three inclusive pairs that show no love for God. Think about the Ten Commandments here. The ungodly, or excuse me, the, the lawless and disobedient is the first pair. They are disobedient. They put other gods before their God. The ungodly and sinners, the ungodly create idols. The unholy and, and profane, they take the Lord's name in vain and they don't honor the Sabbath. They have no love toward God or the, the, the first table of the law, the love toward him. And there's no love toward their fellow man either. Look at these representative of the, of the commandments in order. They don't honor their, their father and mother. They would rather strike them. They're murderers. They're adulterers. They're enslavers. If you kidnap someone, that is the highest form of theft. Stealing a per person for your own purposes. You enslave someone by force. You're a liar. You're a perjurer and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, the 10th one's not there. There is no outward law for covetousness. But as a 10th, just to wrap everything up, anything else that doesn't accord with sound doctrine, that too. All those that the law governs to show us our sin. As to be a curb within, within society, to give believers a way to walk. What is it the one thing that the law can't do? It can't save. There's no salvation in that. That's why he ends in verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The law must accompany the gospel for believers because it has no life in and of itself. This, bring God, this brings God glory, and he alone is to be blessed and should be the focus of our doctrine and practice. Here's what Paul's saying here. The moral standard of the law is consistently upheld in the gospel. Not as a means of salvation, but as an outworking of salvation. The law and the gospel are in no disagreement when it comes to righteous living. They are unified in moral practice. But where they cannot be unified and where they must disagree is in terms of salvation. Moral practice never leads to salvation. Faith in Christ that Paul is talking about. 
The true and living Christ is necessary for salvation. This is why no other gospel, no other doctrine can be taught. Because life and death are at stake. It's the gospel that is first and foremost. Do not muddy the water. And the law that Paul is talking about, the law is, is the chart on the wall when you walk into the doctor's office. Here's all the things that could be wrong with you. But the law is not the cure. The law cannot cure you. But when you have the cure, when you've been given the cure to your own unrighteousness, to your own death in your sin, you respond in love. You respond in faith. And then you live out the law of Christ. That new commandment that we read earlier in John. Look what John says in 1 John 4.21. Here's what Paul's getting at. And this commandment we have from him, from Christ, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Galatians 6. Brothers, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ coming out of the gospel? What should happen in the church? Walking with one another, bearing with one another, guarding the 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 faith and maturity of one another. Because the love of Christ has been poured out on you through his blood. And that we pour out on one another in the church. This is why Paul's so passionate. This is why I'm so passionate. And this is what we're going to do for the next several months as we're working through 1 Timothy. So let's conclude. Why does the doctrine of the church matter so much? Because Christ died for her. Need I say anything else? But I will. Would we distort that? Would we add to that? Christ says, this is my bride to present to myself, holy and blameless. You can't separate Christ's saving love for his bride and his sanctifying love for his bride. How he saved her and how he continues to sanctify her is guarded in his word. He is a jealous God and there's only one way for salvation. This is why it matters. This is why we can't accept a different doctrine. When false teachers say, oh yeah, Jesus, great. Trust in him, live in him, but then do this and then believe this. They are saying Jesus is not enough. The Roman Catholic Church is built on Jesus is not enough. The Mormon faith is built on Jesus is not enough. There's Jehovah's Witnesses. You go down and down and down the line. Every cult is built on Jesus is not enough. You must do more. That is what Paul is calling out here. The law. Here's why he brings up the law. You want to be teachers of the law? The law condemns you. Unless you run to the one who has kept the law for you. Him we teach. Him we preach because he's our only hope. So before we close, we must ask, we must always be asking ourselves when we consider our doctrine. Am I following revelation or speculation? Am I following the the revelatory word of God? Am I trying to add to or make sense of or conform things to my ideals? Second question. 
Does my doctrine unite the body of Christ in love or does it divide and distract? When you talk to someone confessing to be a Christian and they want to change everything about the doctrine of the Bible, hold them to that standard. Revelation or speculation, and does it build the body of Christ up in love or does it divide and distract? Because our doctrine should glorify God to the good of the church, and the false teachers didn't either. Here's the process, and I'll close with this. The law leads us to the gospel. The gospel shows us the love of Christ for sinners. And if the love of Christ has been poured out for you, sinner, pour out his love for his bride, the church. That is the doctrine of God. Let's pray. Lord, after reading a text like this, how could we not say we love you? We love you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Forgive us when we don't. Lord, your people in this room desire to please you and to walk obediently in obedience to you. But we all so often fall short. We so often believe things we shouldn't hold on to things that are secondary or not life giving at all. Help us to see Christ. Help us to look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us. That is love. We ought to be people of that love. We ought to guard that love jealously because you guard us jealously. May we be faithful. May your church be faithful. May faithful laborers across the globe work out of their salvation. So that the bride may be presented to her bridegroom pure and spotless at the day of his return.